This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Rico Media with Peter Kafka, and today I'm speaking with Judd Apatow. Um, Judd Apatow has made so many things that I loved. Here's a very incomplete list. The Larry Sanders Show, Freaks and Geeks, 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, Girls, Love. Um, I've had a bunch of people on my show whose work I really admire. I've never had anyone whose work help me name my sons. So thank you for that, Judd Apatow, and welcome to the show. What are the sons' names? Ben and Jonah. They wow. are 13 and 11, <laughs> so that's knocked up in super bad era. Yeah, my goodness. And, and is that true or just seems that way? Oh, no, it's definitely true. I was definitely watching <laughs> Knocked Up going, oh, Ben, that's the character's name. That's that's yeah. that's a good Old Testament name for my kid. I, I like that yeah, name. That. That's a good name. There's and some that, Ben Apatows out there. Um, do you know them? Uh, sure. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> You have had a very productive pandemic, so you're out promoting a bunch of stuff. You've got a new book out, Sicker in the Head. You've got a new movie out on Netflix this week, The Bubble. There's a documentary coming out on George Carlin on HBO. Um, what was your approach to getting... This is all stuff you made, I think, during the pandemic. What was your approach to getting stuff done at a time when a lot of people either couldn't work or their work lives were severely disrupted or maybe they didn't even want to work? What, 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 were, you, what were you doing? Well, I think like a lot of people at the beginning of the pandemic, I was just trying to figure out, you know, what life was going to be, what was safe. So I was in my early panic stage. Yeah. And then we made a decision to sell the King of Staten Island as a direct download instead of putting it in the movie theater. Pete was very into just getting it out there. And we all thought, that was Pete Davidson, the star of the movie. Yes. Yeah. And we all thought everyone is, you know, feeling terrible right now. And we have this thing that we think would make them happier. And it was, you know, a way of paying respects to first responders. So it, it, it felt appropriate to come out. So then the press tour, which would have been running around the country, turned into an enormous amount of press sitting on my couch. Mm -hmm. and And that took a few months to do. And then... I got bored, you know, I just started taking long walks, trying not to gain massive amounts of weight. And then one day I told a friend, I think we need to think of things, but not not to make them, because I didn't know when you'd be allowed to make anything, literally just to keep my brain alive. I said, let's just write stories while taking these two hour walks every day. And I started thinking about the NBA bubble because that seemed pretty pressurized. And there was that one player who went to a funeral. He left the bubble. And on his way back, 
he stopped at a strip club and he said it was because the food was really good. The wings. There. He liked the wings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he got in trouble. And that slowly morphed into something that was easier to shoot, which is a, a bubble where someone's trying to make a dinosaur action movie. And that's, that the bu- that's, like, that's the bubble. That's the bubble in the movie. I, I just thought, well, I could do a two-set movie. One set's a hotel. One set is a green screen stage where they're shooting a dinosaur action movie. And you could do like a little Christopher Guest semi-improvised movie. And then it just got more and more complicated because I decided, what if the dinosaurs looked exactly the same quality level as Jurassic Park? Would that be funny? And it got a little closer to Tropic Thunder than a Christopher Guest movie. But it was a way to stay sane and work on something and do the only thing that I do that is helpful for people, which is to make funny things. I'll talk about the other projects in a minute. So you made The Bubble, which, like you said, is is a Tropic Thunder-style movie. It's broad parody. It's specifically about the pandemic. You made it in the pandemic. Um, I think a lot of stuff that was either made in the pandemic or, or created, you know, has been coming out afterwards, doesn't reference the pandemic. People go out of their way not to show people in masks or they'll reference it sort of obliquely. But you're explicitly making it about the pandemic. Were you thinking about whether people would want to see something that referenced something that was either still going on or something they'd just gotten out of and was was a terrible experience? I mean, I've been debating that with people till today. I, I don't know, you know, what uh, people will make of something that is trying to have us laugh at something that was so painful and continues to be painful. But what we're really joking about is lockdowns, isolation, being forced to try to keep your life going when the world is shutting down, how hard it is at work, how hard it is for your ego and your personal life. And it's always funnier through the world of show business and actors because we like to beat up on them and their outsized personalities. So the movie really isn't about the disease and all the issues around that. And it's not about politics in any way. It really is about losing your mind when you're stuck in the same place and people won't let you go home until the movie's done. But there's a lot of like nasal swabbing and people yes, wearing yes, masks and and, yes. and 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 you see the after effects when people get various illnesses and um, yeah they, well they get uh, they all get the flu but a different flu right they all they all get what they call the the normal flu the good flu and get and get sick with that and and no matter how badly it goes the studio won't let them shut down and and that's part of the satire of the show and and Hollywood which is this funny meta experience, which is we're making fun of people who think that there's a need for a Cliff B6 or a need to make a movie while we're actually making a movie. So we're attacking something that we're actually doing. So uh, it's a hypocritical endeavor in all ways. Do you have that reaction when you're watching something today and you see it's a, it's a shot of a crowd of people in a restaurant or wherever and you go, Oh, that's, that's too close. Or, or is that, did you have that experience? And are you getting out of that? I find myself sort of, moving into being able to watch stuff like a normal person in normal times again. I think that we're all trying to figure out how you talk about this in movies and television. Are we creating a world where it never happened? Are we creating a world where it's over? Are we writing about it as it's happening? And I have watched TV where they're doing a touch of it and and I find it very off-putting. There have definitely been shows I've watched where like, they're doing a semi-mask thing, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like I'm out. You, you know, you lost me there. Uh, so I do understand if people <laughs> don't want to like watch something about it. What we're trying to do is be all in. 
just fully in and go, this was terrible, continues to be, and let's laugh and commiserate about all the ways we lost our minds. And so it, it is a fully immersive experience, but it, you know, it's more along the lines of a, you know, of, of like a Mel Brooks movie or something like that. We're trying to really go hard funny. It, it Usually I'm trying to be very emotional and trying to figure out how to get laughs while being very grounded and emotional. This is probably the silliest movie that I've made, regardless of the subject matter. Yeah, and there's some projectile vomiting. Uh, always, always. Which I think you always have, or at you least have, 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 have frequently. There's a lot of, there's a lot of penis, there's a lot of sex and drugs. There's a... Uh, it's all in there. We didn't. We didn't. It was dinosaur. It, it was dinosaur penis, though. I think the funny thing is, you know, you work with these artists who are the people who make movies like Jurassic Park, and the these CGI people, they're hilarious, but they're never allowed to be because those movies are usually pretty serious. So if you say, "What jokes could we do in our bad flying dinosaur movie?" They're they're riotous, and there certainly were CGI artists saying, "I think we should make the penis." and balls flammable. And, and and there was a lot of discussion, what would the dinosaur penis look like? I mean, the amount of meetings I had to get the perfect, strange-looking dinosaur alien-like penis, I, I can't even begin to tell you. Well, that's a pretty good pandemic time, then. Um, yes, one thing it's that, better than sitting home looking deep into your soul. One thing that, that Mel Brooks never had in his movies were TikToks. Uh, here yes. you've got your daughter Iris playing a TikTok star. Mm -hmm. She's explicitly a TikTok star. You don't make up a different uh, uh, app. Then you guys perform TikToks with the TikTok uh watermark so it's it's very it's very in your face that you're you're making TikToks. I'm curious uh what you th and I was thinking of asking this before I even saw the movie sort of as someone who's been making TV and movies forever what you think of TikTok as a comedy vehicle and then what you think about it in this why you're why you're emphasizing it in the movie. I mean, I'm not the most educated person about TikToks. I'm not on the platform. I think as an older person, sometimes you just say, I think I'm done here, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, our grandparents are like, I'm not going to buy that new Apple computer. And, you know, you know, so the Snapchat comes and you're like, what? And then the TikTok comes and you know that like you're becoming the old fogey, like this isn't for me. Like I, it all stops with Instagram. And I, I, that could change. I could pick it up tomorrow. You could, you could pick it up. I, I started last February and it turns out it's not that complicated. Yeah. You just watch, I, I you think, just watch videos. I think uh, it's not that it's complicated for me. It's more, I am a bit of a hoarder. I get like addicted to looking at things. I, I, when they talk about how the algorithms make you addicted. Yeah. I'm the easiest mark for that. And I just think I, I don't have time for one more thing. And especially if it's all like funny cats and dogs and people falling and silly things. Well, yes, I can watch that and be happy and never write a movie ever again. Mm -hmm. I could just watch, you know, soldiers being reunited with their children unexpectedly and I'm, I'm all in. So I've made a conscious choice to not jump in, but could change tomorrow, tomorrow morning. But in the movie, you're not you're not sneering. I mean, it's your daughter. Like maybe you mm -hmm. wouldn't want to sneer at your daughter. But you're not saying, oh, this is stupid. Like, it's very much sort of you're taking it at face value. Like, here is a person who's a TikTok star. She's in the yes. movie because they want to bring that audience. And then explicitly, you guys are making TikToks in the movie. Did you think yes. about whether that would be something that a generation of TikTok consumers would 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 find attractive and maybe lead them to your movie? 
I certainly was aware that at some point we would make fake TikToks that would become real TikToks. And that is also the other meta meta hypocrisy of the movie. We're satirizing everything that on some level we are a part of. My daughter was really the key to that character. I obviously was going to probably write something that showed very little understanding of what a TikTok star was. I probably would have made it, you know, a, a very shallow person. And Ira said, you're completely wrong. These people, they're very smart and they're ambitious. And there's a reason why they're very successful. And they're also very emotional and they're dramatic. And she really put a lot of time into trying to create the personality of a TikTok star that was unique. And, and she really created the character. And we came up with a lot of it in rehearsals and during the uh, the process of making the movie. So, and then that's how I work with a lot of the actors. You know, I have an outline for how I think their characters should behave, but I do want to morph it with their personality and their ideas. If you're with Fred Armisen and you're like, let's come up with a funny Sundance winning director. It, it, it's a collaboration with, with Fred uh, about what's funny about someone who made a movie for 30 grand, won an award, and then their next movie had a hundred million dollar budget. Yeah, and we should mention this is a huge cast. Keegan-Michael Key, your daughter, uh, Fred Armisen, Gazillion, a, a bunch of folks I'd never seen before. Yes. Um, and I couldn't tell if that was because they are popular in other countries that aren't the U.S. or yes, if they are. they are TikTok people or both. Well, what, what was really fun about this, and it was an experience I had never had, is I shot it in London. And I was able to go there and you know f find some of the great... English and, and comedy stars and people from around the world. So we have Maria Bakalova from Borat and Peter Serafinowicz, who's a legend over there, as well as people like Samson Keough, uh, you know, and people like Harry Traveldwin, who plays the COVID supervisor, who's someone I saw on Instagram just doing funny videos. He had never been in anything before, literally nothing. But his Instagram was hilarious. And then he came on set and with no experience, really stole every scene he was in, and it was pretty shocking because this is the guy who plays the COVID, the COVID uh, doctor, or the yeah, the, the, the guy who says, uh, you know, due to the COVID protocols, you can't hit on people or touch people, but yeah. you can make sweet eyes. And every day, you know, we would just say, just make a speech about what the protocols are, or something like that, and he would be able to improvise something pretty amazing. Did you have any sense of like, oh, this is different than working with a Pete Davidson or someone who's come up through traditional comedy or, or movies? Did you feel like, oh, I'm working with an Instagram star and that's different? Well, I was very shocked because he's a great actor. And I just don't know how you become a great actor having never been in these situations before. But there are people who are just very natural and funny and for reasons which make no sense, confident. Because it's scary to be on a set and have to suddenly improvise in front of a 40-person crew and and other actors. It's pretty remarkable how, how great he is in the movie. And he's a very nice person. But he literally had like three lines in the script. And I just said, just be around whenever we're shooting and I'll throw you a couple of lines. And every time he made something out of it. And that is a little bit about what's happening with Instagram and, and places like TikTok, which is there are people alone in their room figuring out how to be funny. And someone said to me that there's a whole group of people, they're almost like stand-up stars who don't do it in the clubs. And they get good. It's not like you can say, you can't get good. There are people who are insanely funny and they don't leave their room. And that's that's a new thing. Yeah, in your book, you're talking to Amber Ruffin, who's a writer mm -hmm. for uh, Seth Meyers. And she and she's someone who has traditionally gone through tons of improv. But she was talking about how, how performing without an audience during the first year or so, maybe two years of the pandemic, was 
pleasurable for her, that she enjoyed not having an audience, that it freed her. Yes. Um, so I guess you'll see more of that. Sp- speaking of the audience, uh, you mentioned King of Staten Island was a direct-to-video in the beginning of the pandemic. This is a Netflix-only streaming movie. We were talking mm-hmm. before we recorded about how that's different and how you've got to do a premiere at the at the Paris theater that Netflix owns. Yes. <laughs> at, th- at this point, do you care whether an audience sees your movie in a theater or or at home? And what are well, they? What are they? What do you? What do you gain and what do you lose by making movies that are streaming only? Well, I think that's really the question: uh, is what is the relationship between the artist and the creator to the experience of people watching it? And I think about movies. So let's say I make a movie and it costs ten dollars to see it, and ten million people see it and it grosses a hundred million dollars. Well, that's a gigantic success. For a comedy. Now on Netflix, let's assume if this movie doesn't do great, 30 to 40 million people will watch it around the world. And then what will that feel like? Like someone could say, ah, it's a disaster. Only 25 million people watched it. And so what am I supposed to make of it? Because it feels different on the street. And what does it feel like when people watch a movie and they like it, but then they watch like 70 other shows right afterwards and it doesn't really imprint mm-hmm. for that long. And that's the experience I'm interested in in having to see what it's like. Because I know a lot of people see great things, but then, you know, if you watch 60 episodes of 90 Day Fiance right afterwards, do you remember how much you loved watching Power of the Dog Right, a streaming service. And the truth is, I don't know if it is different. It might be that I'm older and this is how people consume things. And they love these movies that they watch at home in the same way I loved going to see The Jerk in a movie theater. I don't really know if there's a difference. It might be all in my head. And so I think the artist has to make some sort of adjustment that this relationship is different. Yeah, we're around the same age. To me, it just feels fundamentally different when you go out to see a movie and yeah. and, and all of the good and bad things that come with that. I remember going, coming back from Funny People, uh, a movie you made years ago, and came home and my, my very young son had blood all over his face. My parents yes. were watching him, and they didn't want to disturb us during the movie. So anyway, I associate going to that movie with my... He was with fun. violence and blood. With, with, and, with blood. Uh, but now uh, you'll never forget that movie I will well, always remember that movie. It's related to, to trauma. Um, but yeah, and I, it's hard for me to imagine that Red Notice, which is the Netflix's most popular movie ever, and gazillion people saw it, is meaningful to those people. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people who and love that also, movie love it. Also, does it need to be? You know, does it need to be meaningful? I mean, how many, you know, action movies that I watched as a kid that I loved and forgot about the next week? And I think it's up to each individual to decide what's meaningful. I mean, if you like the bubble, you might watch it 10 times. Or maybe it was just fun for the night and you're, you're done with it. The thing that I like about comedy and comedy films is unlike very serious movies, you know, for the most part, you're not going to watch The Hours twice. And that's one of my you know, favorite go-to movies. Uh, I just don't think that it serves the same purpose in your life where when you're feeling crappy, you might just put on Step Brothers for the yeah. 75th time. <laughs> and so it's confusing uh, right now. The thing I thought you were going to say is, well, obviously for comedies, you see them in a theater um, laughing along with people next to you, your friends or strangers is a big part of the experience. And when yeah. you consume it at the first time at home, it's different. But it seems like, 
maybe we just have to live with the fact that a lot of this stuff is going to be viewed for the first time and, and, and forever um, on a phone, on a TV. Well, it, you know, comedy at its best is a big communal experience. You know, we're, we've been testing this movie that Billy Eichner stars in that he wrote with the director, Nick Stoller, called Bros. And it's a, the first, you know, kind of big budgeted gay rom-com from a major studio. So we've been going around the country showing it to audiences and it's packed. It's 300 people, completely filled theaters. And it just, it kills. People love it. It's very emotional. It's really, really funny. And when you leave the theater, you think this is what people want. They, people love this. They love this way more than seeing things at home. But at the same time, there's so much stuff being made and it's being made for streamers that wouldn't get made if it, it, for the theater, maybe it wouldn't find an audience in a theater. Uh, I mean, the bubble was something Netflix, they were fantastic there. They said, Hey, go take a chance. They greenlit the movie before I wrote the movie. You know, the, you know, there, there were people I'd worked with before, uh, and they believed in us and this movie wouldn't exist without them supporting a really big creative swing. And so there is a place for both. You just don't want to lose the theater. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't want that to disappear. Do you think heart of hearts that people do come back to movie going and it becomes just a thing that people do regularly again? Or do you think that two years of the pandemic have taught us that, you know what, it's going to be superhero movies and maybe horror movies and just about everything else people watch at home because they've just been, they've gotten used to it. And that's the new normal. I, I mean, I think people love being home and they love saving money. And they love being comfortable. But I went with my daughter to see the Batman and we had the greatest time. Yeah. And then the next day she called me and she said, do you want to go see this movie? And it was, it was a horror movie because she loved being at the theater. I could yeah. tell we just had the best movie theater experience. And I always tell people if someone made the hangover Four right now, it would make a billion dollars. People want that big comedy experience in the theater and it may never be what it was in the seventies. It, obviously it's, it's changed, but I hope there's a, a healthy diet of adult movies and dramas and comedies in addition to action and, and horror, because you do need to train the audience to also enjoy that in the theater. And if, if people don't have big comedy experiences, then they won't seek it out. They have to know how great it is. And it's weird for multiple years to disappear from young people's lives where they don't develop the movie theater habit. Yeah. They, they missed a lot. Movies are one of them. Although actually my kids have been going to movies as much as we can. Uh, they yes. definitely like it. And, and, and yeah, but we, I took my, my 13 year old to Batman and he loved it. And, and the fact that there was a near fight, in the screening mm-hmm. was in part the of the experience. Yeah. In the theater. He found that very exciting too. It's what were they fighting about in the theater? Uh, there were a bunch of kids yelling stupid stuff. And then an older guy told him to shut the fuck up. And yeah. then there was some chest bumping. It was very exciting. That, was very that's broken. not good. during the Batman. You got to respect the Batman. You that's what he kept quiet. saying. There's kids here trying to watch fucking Batman, which I just thought the whole experience was, <laughs> was great. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by state farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? 
State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. And we're back. You are you're you're the proto podcaster. You started off um, as a kid in Long Island, going to interview Jerry Seinfeld before he was Jerry Seinfeld. What what was the impulse that had you wanting to go, not only just meet comedy people but interview them? At that age, there wasn't a model well, for that. Yeah, I mean, I I just I probably had watched so many of them, and on one level, I thought it'd be exciting to meet one because I was. A fan. I would sit and write fan letters all day long to see who would send me autographed pictures back. Can I get an autograph from Hal Linden? Will James Garner send me an autograph back? Uh, and so my friend was interviewing people for our high school radio station, like REM band, you know, bands, Susie and the Banshee and Jeff Buckley. And so my friend Josh Rosenthal was doing that. And then he said, Oh, you should try to see if you could talk to comedians. And so Steve Allen had a book coming out. And what's funny is he had a book coming out. It might have even been called Funny People. Uh, and it was just essays about different comedians. He, he would just write little mini bios. Mm -hmm. And I met Steve Allen. And then I thought, who else could I meet? And then I just tried to meet everyone I wanted to meet. Harold Ramis, Howard and, Stern. And was it, was it the meeting them that was exciting or the actual talking to them and interviewing them that was the thrill? Well, well, the first part is just to know they're real. Like, oh, my God, they exist. I can touch them. They can touch me. And I think that made me feel like, oh, being in comedy is possible because that's a human being. And as a kid, you watch TV. And the weatherman is the most exciting thing in the world. You'd see him at the grocery store. You'd lose your mind. Yeah. And then to ask them questions. How do you do it? How do you, how do you, what, specifically, how do you do it was very helpful. But some of it was the human connection of getting a feel for what they were like because a lot of them were from Long Island and, they were like me. Jerry Seinfeld wasn't that different than me. Paul Reiser wasn't that different than me. So it made me think, oh, this requires work, like years and years of hard work. And that is what I took from it. And then with this new book, Sicker in the Head, now I'm established and I'm talking to people as co-workers and I'm saying, you know, why did you get into this? How are you doing? How's your sanity? How are you balancing yeah. your life and your work? How are you keeping connected so your work continues to grow what are your priorities what have the challenges been so it is like talking to someone uh to to trade advice as opposed to just ask advice when i was a kid so in between being a kid and interviewing that your heroes and now you're talking to them and maybe they're still your heroes but they're also your peers you you tried to be a stand-up comic right and then initially and then moved into writing and directing and producing what was the moment where you realized Oh, I'm better behind the stage than on. And I've seen you on stage, by the way. Yeah. I saw you at South by years ago. You were great. Yes. Um, but what what made you think? No, no, I'm I'm better being behind instead of on front. I mean, it was pretty obvious. It's funny because I always tell this story, and Adam Sandler always gets annoyed with me and says like, "Oh, you were just as funny as all of us." But I don't think that that was true. I 
I was aware as a fan when I was around Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler before they hit that they were different. And it was like if you met, I guess like the modern version would be if like you met, you know, Billie Eilish or somebody and you just said, well, this is different. And I, maybe I'm not this. I'm not Jim Carrey. I, I understand what he's doing. I could write for him, but I'm never going to perform like this. But there are lots of people who are not Jim Carrey who either make a career in comedy and they have some degree of success or, and or they don't realize they're not Jim Carrey and they spend a lot of time. When, when did, yeah. did you figure that out right away or did you have to spend some time bumping your head against a wall? It was a slow thing. I did stand up for seven years before I took a break for a while. And then I started up again seven years ago. But I just kept getting work writing. And I I thought, well, I'm too busy to try to keep up the stand-up career. And I'm getting paid a lot more for this writing thing than to go to Addison, Texas and make $600 for the, the week, uh, which was hard hard work. And most mm -hmm. of that money you know, went to food. <laughs> and so by the end of the week, between commissions and, and taxes, you know, you're cleared $100 or $150. It didn't really seem like the future. Now, if I had the strength and the interest in saying, well, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm sure I could have carved out some sort of stand-up performing career, but I was aware that, you know, I'm talking, my friends are like Buster Keaton, you know, Jim Carrey is like Chaplin. And as someone that knows the difference, I thought maybe I should develop my talents in a, in a different way as a writer and a director and, and a producer. That's an interesting level to get to in something where you're good enough to understand how how big the gap is between someone who's as good as you and someone who's really good at it. Uh, there's a great David Foster Wallace uh, story about uh, nonfiction about going to watch like the hundredth ranked tennis player in the U.S. Yes. and and David Foster Wallace was a competitive tennis player, so he can tell you how amazing this guy is. Uh, and that guy could barely survive as a professional tennis player. In fact, flamed out after a year or two. Um, yeah. But you have to it understand what that's like. Well, it's like if you're starting a band and your best friend's Bono. And at some point you realize he's Bono. <laughs> and you walk into rooms and their charisma draws the room to them, even before they're famous. Like you can, you can feel it. Yeah. Uh, and that is the magic of why Adam Sandler has been, you know, a, a big star for 30 years. There, there's something there that is you you can't even quantify what it is. It's you know it's talent, it's hard work, it's it's charisma, and it's just some magical connection that certain people have with the audience, and it's it's very special and, and exciting. And there's only a few people who have it. In every generation, you you only have a few Meryl Streep's or Tom Hanks, um, and but you also have the ability to see them. Um, you mentioned that TikTok's sort of like beyond your limit, like you think you've you've hit the wall, but you're very comfortable on Twitter. You spent a lot of the years in the, the Trump years tweeting angrily. Um, what did the Trump four or five years of, of the Trump era teach you about what comedy could do and also where its limits are, where, where it couldn't give you either the comfort you wanted or affect change? Uh, so there was a moment where you realized I'm not speaking to anybody who needs to hear most of this. And in the, at the beginning of Twitter, I think it was a little bit more of a mix of people. And there certainly probably was a moment where the division 
happened. In the book, I interviewed Samantha B and she said, I don't think I'm changing anyone's mind on anything. I'm trying to basically tell people they're not crazy. And I'm trying to support people who have similar ideas than me. And I, and I thought that was a really smart way to look at it. I do think where you can have an impact on social media is to push young people to get involved and to push people to vote because the voting rates are very low and especially among young people. So a lot of my personal work, both on social media, but also in organizing is trying to get the people who are on the edge of voting to, to get up and do it. So we're, we're always trying to you know, create PSAs or you know, funny videos to tell people like you can make a gigantic impact on this, but you do have to do something. Do you have any sense of whether that stuff works, whether you exhorting someone to, to put their phone down and go vote actually translates to a vote? Is there any way of tracking that or is it just a gut or are you totally in the void? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, we've, we've done these campaigns every time and some of these races are very close. I mean, very, very close. The presidential race was close. A lot of these congressional seats are very close. And, you know, some of what we've tried to do is convince people with massive social media uh, reach to push people to vote, not even to tell them to vote Democrat or Republican, just tell people to vote. And I think, yeah, if somebody's got 50 million followers, 100 million followers, and he says, hey, I think it's important to, you know, be a good citizen and get out and vote today, I, I think it probably does have impact. There's a lot of kids out there that are deciding between like, you know, watching a sporting event and waiting in line and maybe the, their favorite person saying like, you know, we're all a part of this, you know, we need to elect people that have the same values as us, whatever your values happen to be. You were tweeting on Sunday night about the Oscars. You tweeted about the slap and then you took your tweets down the next day. What, or I don't know, I don't know how long it took you to take the tweets down. Why did you take your tweets down? Well, I took him down that night. I mean, I, I think in the moment I put up a lot of jokes just because sometimes something happens and it's just such a setup for a jokes. And it also felt like the idea of, of it was we're not allowed to express ourselves, but then probably it was a little too much and you could feel the world getting all worked up in a way that I found surprising because I, I thought the what happened was very clear, which is basically what Will Smith said in his apology, right? Like it was a moment that it got away from him emotionally and he chose violence and violence is never the answer. And so I'm glad that that happened, that, that he apologized and, and did it in a way which, you know, I think re reflects all of our values. And that moment of you going, I'm going to take this down, was that people tweeting at you angrily saying you got it wrong? Did a publicist step in and go, no, no because judge. everyone reposts it anyway. Yeah. So it really doesn't mean much. It's just like, ah, that was probably too many. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm jumping in too deep, but I, I stand by everything that, that I was saying. It, it's just, you know, like, and this has happened a zillion times. So just something happens and you just, it's almost like if you're a writer for a talk show and, and you could think of 40 jokes that you hope you know, Stephen Colbert would pick one. Yeah. J just as a writer, you you think of uh, you think of too many. I was a little surprised yesterday, where most people I talked to shared the view that you and I have. That this is, you know, what Will Smith did was crazy, and and it's there's no there's no sort of justification, and there's no context. And anecdotally, 
I felt like um, black people who watched that said, no, actually, and, and black women and, and black people in general. Did that occur to you at any point in the last day and a half that there's there's a real different perspective depending on who you are and your lived experience? Well, I, I don't even look at that uh, as a racial thing. I think that they're just people who think that uh, you respond in a certain way and other people think you respond in a different way. Yeah. And we see that. If you look at what Donald Trump said at the beginning of his first campaign, there was people protesting and he said, uh, if someone attacks them, I'll pay for your lawyer. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of talk is very dangerous right now. Uh, whoever says it, whoever you are on any issue, no matter what your race is, because everyone is really on edge. I think we've been through the ringer the last few years for because of COVID, because of politics, because of polarization. And we don't want to encourage people to take that to violence for any situation because people really uh, are afraid and that's why we see violence on airplanes and we see you know people doing things that maybe they wouldn't have done people acting out at sports ago. games throwing stuff yeah, yeah we, we just don't want that and we we don't want to uh promote that in any way and i think that's what will smith was saying in his uh, apology, and I hope that people can read that and understand that that's really the goal for all of us. There has to be a way to work things out uh, in a way that doesn't lead to people getting hurt. A day ago, this was an all-consuming story. My sense today is people maybe have already moved on or are moving on. Do you, what do you think the impact of that event has on movies, on the Oscars, on comedy? Or is this just a story that we're going to remember sort of vaguely a year from now? Uh, it's hard to know because there's such a churn uh, of, of, of events. And there's so much going on. I mean, you know, we're on the precipice of what could be a world war. Mm -hmm. And so as important as, as it is to inspire kids to want peace you know we want that in a in a much larger way and we're all very nervous because the world is in the hands of very few people who can make really large choices you know putin can sit in a room and just go i'm going to level this city and everybody in it and i'm gonna blow up that hospital and i'm gonna blow up that theater filled with children and it is a terrifying moment and whether or not uh, it is expressed Explicitly, I think everyone is in in a state right now about it. Someone with a platform that you have and you can make movies and TV shows and people pay attention to what you say and do. You've gone through this with Trump. Now we're in an entirely different situation, but also it's, it's calamitous. Do you feel like, oh, I've, I've learned how to harness what I can do and I can have an effect? Or do you feel like I still don't understand how to how to how to bend the world in the way yeah, in, in the mean, direction I'd like. I mean, sometimes uh, you know, people say to me, "It's all a waste of time," and maybe toxic to have an opinion. And I always just think, well, if I don't have an opinion, so then I disappear, and then everyone does that mean everyone shouldn't have an opinion? And then there are certain people that are certainly going to have their opinions, and there is a debate about what we want the country to be and what we think it should stand for. So it always feels wrong to be silent to me. Now, there's a bad way to do it, and there's a way to do it that kind of probably causes more problems uh, than it helps or heals. And that's very difficult to understand, like where that line is. 
But I always think about World War II. I always think about Hitler. I, I, I'm, I, I think about people who just stood by and allowed things to happen and didn't raise their voices or take action. You know, this is a very strange country right now. It's, it's, uh, you know, I've been doing a documentary about George Carlin and he just talked about, you know, corporate forces that want us to fight so that they can make money while we're distracted. And I think that uh, is often true. People make money when we have war. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've we've already heard people from you know these companies say this is going to be a great year for us. They don't they don't mind. And there's a lot of businesses that do better because of this, or people take advantage of it politically. And it's all it's all very dangerous. So what can you do? I mean, for me. You could try to get people to vote. You could try to make the voting laws more fair. It makes no sense that in this country, we don't get the day off to vote. It, it makes no sense that you can't do like motor voter registration. It, it, the idea that one party in this country is really trying to create obstacles to voting goes against the core of democracy. But if democracy was pure, people would be against major corporations. And that's why major corporations... Uh, spend a lot of money to control politicians to make sure it's hard for people to vote. And, you know, this is how our country works. And, and, and it requires a lot of energy to push against that. These people are organized. They got a lot of cash. And, uh, and that's very scary. At the same time, we look at what's happening in Ukraine and all these people are uh, risking their lives and dying for the rights that we're almost trying to get rid of we're trying to take away the freedom to vote mm-hmm. and to run our government so i i hope people will pay attention to that it's very very hard to wrap your head around and you can understand the impulse to want to ignore all of it and at the same time uh be entertained i'm trying to find a way to tie all this together with, with your movie <laughs> promotion i'm not succeeding um it, it doesn't it doesn't lead to the bubble but the, the the funny thing is, uh, you know, what my book is about is how can you be funny right now? What is the value of being funny in in this era? And I, so I talked to a lot of people like Ram Youssef and Hassan Minaj and mm-hmm. and uh, Lin Manuel Miranda and Nathan Fielder and and Whoopi Goldberg to say, you know, what are we supposed to do? What 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 is the purpose of comedy and art uh, in a, a calamitous? world your, your preface is you talk about uh, this feeling you had in the pandemic what meaning does my life have why am i so disinterested and interested at the same time and that seems like a very good encapsulation of our state right now yes i think that people feel powerless but yet you got to fight against that feeling that you can't make an impact and it's not supposed to be that one person changes everything it's you know we're a doc- democracy and the simplest thing is to learn what's happening in your community. Figure out which judge you should vote for. Figure out what the issues are. And the more people who are involved, the better chance the country has. Jed Apatow, I feel better talking to you. Um, I you don't. Your time. Yeah, well, I don't feel better. Yeah, but I'm you entertain me. You entertain me. I'm going to let you go. Um, it's delightful to meet you. I'm, I'm a big fan, like I said. Thank before. you very much. Thanks for having me.